0: and the red lettering in that building made it feel like I was in an amusement park. It was sweet smelling and fragrant and everything about that place was inviting and wonderful. It was every child's dream, at least it was my childhood dream place to go, the bulk barn. Every candy you could dream of in a big bin with a scoop just waiting for you to take it? You feel me? This is a place that any kid could reenact that classic scene from Charlotte's Web where the rat's running through the fairgrounds taking the smorgasbord of food. That's how I felt anyway. And that's what I was singing in my head and sometimes out loud. This was the most amazing place on earth. And as my parents wandered down the aisle in front of me looking for things for holiday baking, because our family was huge, not our immediate family, but my dad was the youngest of 11. So when Christmas happened, Christmas happened. And so we had to start baking really early. So this was November, we're stockpiling, getting all the dried fruits and goods and all the maraschino cherries for those perfect Christmas cookies. And so they weren't paying any attention to Templeton scurrying along behind them like the little rat that I was. And that was when this magical place became the greatest source of temptation a child could imagine. I saw the gummy bears. And they were the big ones. Last night, we addressed what it means for us to be sitting at the broken table. We talked about how a wobbly table can put us off balance. And it's not always that we are committing acts of sin actively in our life. But sometimes, the life of sin that we've come out of puts us off balance. And we don't even realize it. And so the things that we used to be and no longer are in Christ, can still affect the life that we are walking into and trying to walk with Christ to the point where we can't engage in growth because we are so far from the one who wants to help us grow. And sometimes it's not even our own fault, but sometimes it is because we have experienced sins committed against us. And we find ourselves experiencing traumas that we can't unveil on our own. And we need the help of the people around us to support us, uplift us, and walk with us as the Holy Spirit unveils that in our lives. And sometimes it is our fault when we're so busy looking at what was the highs that we've experienced in life, the hopes that we had, and how God revealed himself in that one moment and we're waiting for that moment to happen again, but God is waiting to do something new in our lives, something better, something bigger, something we can't even imagine in our lives. Some of us are still wrestling through that, and uh, as Dawn shared earlier, I like to give what we would call fun facts. So here's the first fun fact of the evening, other than the fact that the bulk barn is my greatest vice. (laughs) I work as a professor. And so I love creating content for courses. I love being present with my students. And I love giving them things that they'll actually read and will make an actual difference in their lives. So if you are still wrestling through what we talked about last night, I've got two books, one for each category that you might find yourself in that can really make a difference. They're very short, very easily written books. The first one I actually have a copy of here is Holiness for Ordinary People. This was written by Keith Drury, Reverend in the Wesleyan Church. He's been a professor for ages, and this is a very simple introduction for how we can walk and not look backwards and instead be focusing on growing in holiness and looking forward in our faith. For those of us who may be coming out of trauma or are still feeling that off balance of trauma, of sin in our lives, whether it's our own or trauma against us, the bondage breaker is an excellent book that you can dive into and begin to unpack some of that. And so these two books are ones that you can use as tools in your life and faith journey. So let's dive into tonight, shall we? Tonight, we're going to be talking about a new table. And this is a table that we don't belong at, the stolen table. We'll be talking about the stolen table that exists in the story of 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 4. Now, I'm not going to read the whole passages there. It's a lot of reading. But what I will do is we'll be looking at 1 Samuel 2, verses 12 through 17. And this is just a snippet of the kind of thievery that was happening within God's people during this time. We're going to be exploring Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas and asking ourselves this critical question of faith. Do we take what's not ours? Do we sit at the stolen table? Our overarching focus is, again, 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 4. But this specific moment I'll be reading is 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And I'm reading in the New Revised Standard Version. So if yours is a little different, that might be why. Now the sons of Eli were scoundrels, and they had no regard for the Lord or for the duties of the priest to the people. When anyone offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come, while the meat was still boiling, with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and that fork, whatever it brought up, that was what the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came. Moreover, when the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the one who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take whatever you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now or I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men Was very great in the sight of the Lord, for they treated the offerings of the Lord with contempt. May the word of the Lord encourage us and uplift us as we learn from what it is saying to us tonight. Let's take a brief look of what is happening in 1 Samuel. So not everybody knows these first four chapters right off by heart, I don't expect you to, but let me give you a quick rundown. We'll call it the Sparks Notes, if you will. Chapter one, Hannah and her family. She's a young woman in Israel, she's waiting to have her first child and she's been waiting for a long time. A sister wife has already had a lot of children and. They're celebrating that wonderful thing. Her husband is really great about the fact that she doesn't have children, which was not the norm. So she finds herself at the annual festival in the temple, the family camp, if you will. And she is at the altar and she is praying so hard that Eli, the priest, looks at her and says, she's drunk. And he goes to her and instead of saying, how can I be with you in this moment? He says, get out of the temple. You are drunk. This is not acceptable here. This is no place for you. I'm sorry. If someone is drunk at the altar, that is the place for them to be. So for one, we're a little mixed up here, but that's chapter one. She goes home after having told him, I'm not drunk. I'm just really hoping for a baby. And he says, oh, oh, my mistake. The Lord blesses you and sends her on her way. She goes home. Surprise. The Lord blesses her. And the next festival when she returns... She acts as the priest, chapter two. She comes into the temple and the same woman who was told, you are not good enough to be here, stands up and prays the most priestly prayer that we can find in that section of the Old Testament. She, a woman who was not qualified for ministry because of her gender, because of the fact that everyone thought she was drunk in that moment, was not qualified and she stands up and gives a prayer that is honoring and foretelling of the Messiah to come, and so critical to Israel in that moment. This is also the chapter where we just see the part about Eli's sons. So at the same time that someone who is not a priest is acting as the high priest, those who should be are not. Those who should be standing and saying, this is what the Lord requires of you, instead, They're stealing meat before it's even cooked. Something that was so despicable in the eyes of the Lord. There were rules for how you gave offerings. The Lord didn't ask a lot, but when it came to sacrifices, it was very specific. We also learn that Hophni and Phinehas were guilty of more than just stealing a little meat. They were guilty of abusing their privileges and power in ways that left women in the position where Eli would think someone praying fervently is probably drunk. This was not a new occurrence, and we find out that moment, Eli probably was more used to finding people drunk than actually praying that fervently because of the sins of his sons. Chapter 3 tells the story of Samuel being called by God in parallel to the slow decline of Eli, the high priest, the father of the two men who are not acting as God would call them to. And so while the original prophecy that we hear in chapter 2 condemning the two young men does not include their father, another prophecy happens in this chapter that says, Eli, your whole house will fall, as in you too. Chapter 4, final condemnation is given against the house of Eli, and his two sons die on the battlefield. He dies when he learns the news, as does his daughter-in-law, who is in early labor. Only a grandchild is left of their lineage. Why do I explain all of this? Because this is a period in time in which the people did what was right in their own eyes. And this is how far the priesthood had gone with it as well. In the books prior to this, Judges and Ruth, we see how the people had fallen, and here we see how those who were meant to follow God the closest, those who were meant to be the very face of God on this earth, they too did what was right in their own eyes. This is the final act that is painted prior to the coming king. Knowledge is culpability. I wanna keep that in mind as we're talking tonight. Knowledge is culpability. We are responsible for what we know. Media kind of framed this for me while I was growing up with two key phrases. And the first one, many of you probably are familiar with, is knowledge is power. First, it was said by Sir Francis Bacon, but I first heard it from Schoolhouse Rock, let's be honest. The second thing, Kind of shows the hand about what I like to watch and listen to. With great power comes great responsibility. Uncle Ben, (laughs) Spider-Man. Knowledge is power, but knowledge is also responsibility. What we know, we are responsible for. The more we learn about our faith journey, and the more that we sense the Holy Spirit drawing us to, the more we are responsible to act on. The more we know... The more we know about lying, greed, gluttony, the more we're responsible to act on those things. Hophni and Phinehas, they weren't any exception to this. In fact, they would have been some of the most knowledgeable young men in Israel. To know was their job because they were meant to bring all of Israel into alignment with God's word. They were the priests in training to be high priests because as soon as Eli kicked the bucket, they were supposed to be it. And here they were, inviting devastation onto the temple, so much so that the high priest is chastising genuine expression of faith as something very disingenuine. They would have known also that to take boiling meat was a great sign of contempt. They would have known and they would have understood that Israelites don't eat anything with blood in it. That was part of God's law for them as a part of safeguarding them in a climate that clearly doesn't have refrigeration in the sense that we have here and definitely needed it. Don't eat the blood partly because it was a sign of disease, but partly because it was also venerated in every other religion as the thing that gave you life. God told his people, you don't need that because I am enough for you. And here stood the high priest saying, I don't want your boiled meat. I want it to taste the way I want it to taste. Forget your sacrifices. What matters is my meal. My table. They stole the very thing that the people would bring to say, God, I honor you. And they took it to honor themselves. Do we sit at stolen tables? Are we in a place where we know things and we're not being responsible for what we know? Eli knew enough about what was happening in the temple that he chastised Hannah. So obviously there's some things happening in the background that he is aware of, but he is not acting on it. As the high priest, he was someone who had every authority to say, you, my two sons, don't belong in the priesthood. And he would have had every right to put them out. In fact, God was so good to him that he even gave him a replacement in Samuel the child that was prayed for by the drunken woman. She gave him to God. And God gave Eli the perfect opportunity to raise a son, to provide a new lineage of priests. And instead, Eli is too busy worrying about his own lineage. Because his daughter in laws pregnant. Well, what happens to the baby if they're no longer Levites? They don't, they're not handed anything in life. Those without a tribe, what do they do next? There's nothing for them. And so all he could think about was his own. That didn't take away from the fact that he knew better. Our responsibility, are we culpable to that? There's a a thought and a pattern in the church that we sometimes take this vein of thinking and we use a really hard line stance. We either go full Eli where we don't address things at all or we go fully on the opposite side and I don't have an example of a person for that, but I will give you an example of what it looks like. Sometimes we're over here like Eli and we don't address things at all and we see people doing wrong and we're like, "Mm, well, that's their choices. And the other side of things is that we're way over here in somebody else's business. And we are far too concerned with what they're doing than what the heart is behind what they're doing. We are so far concerned over here that we see someone doesn't look enough like Jesus for us. And we are so worried about the fact that they don't look enough like Jesus to us that we don't think about the fact that they are praying with everything they have at the altar. Everything. Because maybe they don't have a lot to bring, but they are bringing it. Are we in a place over here where we are stealing the table out from under someone because we are so worried that the table doesn't match the decor? Are we so worried that someone is coming to this place and they don't look enough like what we think Jesus looks like that we miss out on seeing the actual Christ? The Sadducees and the Pharisees missed him. Let's not miss Christ in our presence. Knowledge is culpability. We know that Eli knew better. He even held Samuel to a higher calling. This is the crazy part about chapter 3 and 4. We see this little boy that is raised in the temple, and somehow Samuel turns out amazing in contrast to Eli. Hophni and Phinehas. The same man who raised these two boys who are destroying the temple single-handedly also raises Samuel, who was there to restore it. Eli knew. He didn't act on it. But at the same time, he did raise Samuel. We see that Samuel was brought up to know, and Samuel is responsible for what he knows. At the same time, though, in his final days... Eli gives up because he has watched his sons wander so far and he's heard the pronouncement about them and he knows that his lineage isn't going to continue even if he tries to safeguard it himself. And then he hears the pronouncement that you're out too because you haven't done anything. So he gives up. That's it. And as an old man, we read in 1 Samuel 4 the account of how a young man came from the battle line to tell him your sons are dead. And he's so overwhelmed by it that he falls from the stool where he was waiting to hear the news and he dies. This wasn't any moment to miss here. Sometimes we read it in passing, we're like, well, so falls Eli. But there's something to note here. We can really see this man gave up. Because in scripture, when we read things like Eyes that are blinded or heavy, or people that have gotten fat or heavy. In the Old Testament, that particularly is almost always found in the context of someone who has walked away from God. There's maybe two instances in all of Scripture where we see that that is not the case. And the immediate context prior to this is the king who was so fat and so abusive of his power that they didn't even notice that he had been stabbed to death. They just thought he was asleep and fat. Judges 3, Eglon. He was so overweight and so built on his own kingdom, they didn't even notice he was dead. It took hours and days to find out. And then we read Eli's death. His eyes were weakened. He was heavy. And it's all in the context of the slippery slope of faith. And he loses sight of the kingdom. What is significant in here? Knowledge is culpability. When we know better, we need to do better. We need to seek to do better in those moments. And it's not just that you'll always get it right and that you'll always act in the best way possible, in the best circumstances. Sometimes we try. And sometimes trying is enough because that is what God is asking of us. Sometimes trying is all we can do, and we're not gonna get it perfect because none of us are perfect. But Christ can empower us to do the things that we can't. The fact is that we're trying. When we know better, we must seek to do better. As a kid in Balkburn, I stood there in full knowledge of what stealing was. I had done my time in Wesleyan Sunday School. I knew every flannel graph, every white guy stitched together into the panels of 12 that, oh, that's definitely the disciples. And I could pick out which one was which, because Judas always looked kind of shady. I knew what stealing was, but that did not stop my tiny thieving hand from reaching up and grabbing the scoop, because, you know, we gotta be sanitary about it. Taking the scoop in in getting that holy grail of a giant gummy bear. My parents didn't notice. It was only a gummy or two. I reached up with that little scoop and I took what wasn't mine. But when we got to the car, (laughs) my parents, I never understood this part of the story until I was a parent myself, but they looked at me and they were like, what is in your mouth? (laughs) Let me tell you, as a parent of a toddler, I get that now. I understand the question, what is in your mouth? Because you never know, you never know what it is. But in this moment, it was a gummy bear, so it's like relatively safe, except for the fact that we didn't pay for that gummy bear. And my parents looked at me and they said, you know what stealing is, right? I said, yeah. Like, do you realize you just stole that gummy bear? Like, it's one gummy bear. And they said, no. And so they took me back into the bulk barn and they asked the poor lady at the cash, can we have one of your plastic bags, please? And I was like, what are we doing? Are we buying another one? Yes. No. My parents made me spit what was left of that gummy bear into that bag. The lady weighed it, and then my dad looked at me, and he's like, okay, where's your wallet? And he made me pay for it because I knew better And in that moment, it was time for me to do better. It was the worst purchase I've ever made. Have you ever eaten a gummy bear that was half eaten? (laughs) It is not as good the second time, but I will tell you, I have never pickpocketed gummy bears again because I knew better and now I have to do better. And so when I was growing up and my friends as teenagers were like, man, lipstick is expensive. I knew better, so I didn't do the things that they were doing to grab cosmetics and run. I knew better. Man, it was hard. I never learned how to do makeup. Like, this is it. (laughs) It's one lipstick. I mean, it's, come on, people. But (laughs) I never learned how to do that because I didn't take part in the things that they were doing because makeup was too expensive for me to take part in. I lost out on those things, but in all honesty, the things that I gained from not taking part in those things made me a better person. This is not just about our own faith, though. A lot of this, of what we've talked about, has felt very personal, internal faith, like I should do better because I know better, but here's the thing. Sometimes we unknowingly steal the potential for someone else to come to know Christ because we are so busy thinking about how our own faith goes. We are so busy thinking about how things look that we miss out and we isolate people from the potential to be a part of God's kingdom. How many lives around us are unchanged and unconnected from the person who could transform their lives because we get up here before the meat's even been fat-burned or boiled and we take what is not ours. How many of us look at someone and say, mm, too raw, nope. Just, you just don't cut it. You don't look like what faith should look like. A big part of my calling in ministry is ministry to the ostracized. People who have felt like the church is not theirs because of location, because of culture, or sometimes because they've been pushed out. It was a big part of our ministry in Toronto, reconnecting with communities that have been isolated and it's been a big part of my work as an author, writing for communities to understand how we can build bridges that don't exist because it's uncomfortable, because we've been taught to be afraid. Let me tell you this. That moment with Peter on the rooftop, when he begins to understand that what was unclean has now been made clean, that's more than just a moment where we can start eating meats again that Israel was not allowed to eat. Like, yes, thank God for bacon. But at the same time, thank God that my brothers and sisters and non-binary siblings in the LGBT community still have a place at this altar right next to me. That is a hard thing to say and a harder thing to hear for some of us, but let me put it in this context. Christ wants to transform their lives as much as he wants to transform my life. And who am I to say, find another altar? It is not our place to take the table out from in front of the guest that Christ has invited. It is not our place. It is not our place to take that table from out in front of the orphan child who has never known their own culture and is suddenly here and has no idea what it means to be North American, let alone Christian. And so the culture and the things that they walk into seem weird and foreign and they just don't get it. It's not our place to take that table. It's not our place to take the table away from people who have just never been exposed to Christ in the first place because let's face it, most people my age in Canada have never set foot in a church. And if they have, it's for a wedding or a funeral. And usually there's a bar afterwards and they remember that part, not the part that was here because most pastors don't get the opportunity to speak to every congregation member. We take the table because sometimes we're afraid of who's gonna sit at the table. We know better. We have to do better. Samuel faced the same situation as Eli later in life. In fact, he took steps ahead of Eli and didn't even allow his two sons to take up the priesthood because he knew better. And when his two sons were coming of age, he made them judges because he did not trust them to oversee what God had ordained for his people. And he raised up other priests. And even then, when his sons were called out for being pretty trash as judges, he said, okay, they're done. And he went before the people and the people said, we want a king. And Samuel went to God and God was like, well, if they want it, I guess, but it's not my idea for God's kingdom here because I'm supposed to be king over them. But let the people have what the people want. But Samuel did everything in his power to protect God's kingdom and to prevent the abuses that he had grown up under so that more people could come to the table. It started early on. This wasn't like, oh, Samuel's a man now, I guess we'll just see him as our priest because Eli fell off a chair. It started while he was still alive. Eli was serving faithfully as a child, as a teenager, as a young adult, to the point where when Eli died, it didn't change much. Honestly, Israel still had a priest. In fact, Israel had a faithful priest again. Last night, we talked about the wobbly table, the things that put us off balance in our faith. And I used the illustration of my parents who had been gifted this table that still wobbles and on and on and on and because it's a gift, they can't give it away even though it's an expensive table and they tried everything like mounting those little sticky things underneath and trying to level out the floor with those little fake tiles you can put underneath and it was a hot mess because they tightened every bolt and then they loosened every bolt and tried to figure out like what's the happy balance and so it's now at like a, a low ocean tide. 11 years later, they still have this table. 11 years. And so when we went to visit them this past summer as my mom was being ordained and we sat down to a feast of lobster, we sit down and I notice my dad doesn't put his elbows on the table until everybody's seated and then he casually puts his arms down but not his elbows because that's too much of a tide here. And I realized they still haven't fixed the wobble. Eleven years later. We are about to eat lobster and I'm getting seasick. I'd had enough. I get up from the table and I look underneath the table and I'm like, that's it, I'm gonna rip off those little tabs and we are just gonna be done. What it is, it is. I will get out the sanding equipment if I have to. But I am not eating a deal at this table because I'm done. And you know what we realized in that moment, after 11 years? They weren't sticky pads. They were twisting levelers. 11 years with a wobble and the thing had leveling feet. Sometimes we find ourselves with a simple fix like this tonight. Sometimes our wobble is just that we are not willing to see God's kingdom for what it can be. And the simple fix is right there in front of us. That little leveling feet right there. It was weird, the first meal. We ate lobster, yeah, it was a great celebration, in part because my mom was ordained, but after 11 years, we're celebrating that table. It's fixed. It was amazing, but we all felt off balance because suddenly when my dad went to get up, we didn't all like push down on the table in order to make sure that when my dad inevitably gets up, The table doesn't go like this. He got up. Nobody had to hold the table. We all jumped for it, but we didn't need to. When we steal enough tables, we put ourselves off balance. The kingdom is off balance. It's like a bad seating chart for a wedding. You put everybody on one side of the room, and it's obviously not a dance floor over here. What are we doing? What are we doing? Do we sit at stolen tables? Eli's son chose not to take what was their own, what was their right to take, because the stolen meat tasted better. The safeguarded community feels more comfortable. The place that looks like us is more comfortable when we see our knowledge for what it is and we lean into that knowledge in our relationship with god a few things happen particularly we find ourselves less afraid and we find ourselves less afraid of the faith expressions that look different than our own now i was raised as a strict East Coast Wesleyan, and the even thought of speaking in tongues, whoa, that is not biblical. I mean, it is, but I didn't think it was because I was an East Coast Wesleyan who was basically Baptists in disguise that acknowledged women in ministry. That's where we were. And so when we get to General Conference this year for the Wesleyan Church and they're talking about, let's talk about a biblical expression of speaking in tongues. A little part of me was like, what? (laughs) And then the other part of me was like, you know what? What God has ordained as good and clean and wonderful, who am I to stand in front of and steal that table out from people? Because here I am standing in front of you as a good East Coast Wesleyan who also found herself standing at the same sink as a young girl from Nepal. And we had a conversation with each other and it was only after that conversation that I realized I don't speak Nepali and she does not speak English. And in that conversation we talked about Jesus and we talked about the love of Christ and how amazing it was that we had gotten to take communion together that morning and how wonderful it was that God's kingdom knows no bounds. And that was the moment we turned and looked at each other. She's like, when did you you learn Nepali? Because I had to get someone to translate what she was asking. And I was like, your English was really good. (laughs) And that's when we realized, no, the Holy Spirit was really good in that moment. Faith expression didn't look anything like what I thought it would, but I was not afraid when someone is called to serve in our communities that doesn't look like what we expect, we are less afraid. I found myself at a conference just this year where I was alongside of people that 10 years ago I wouldn't have even been in the same room as because I didn't think that they could be faithful servants of the gospel because they were gay. But with me at that conference, were dozens of people who lived celibate lives and honored God with everything they do and make a way for more people to understand the transformative power of Jesus Christ in their lives because they had a heart for Jesus that was deeper than some of ours. And I was stunned, but I wasn't afraid. And I found myself less afraid in the moments when we see that need to correct people in our community where we see things that are happening like gossip i mean prayer chains No know gossip <laughs> where we find ourselves less invested in the act of praying for one another than we are in the finding out what we're going to pray for i'm less afraid of leaning into the prayer side of things now i'm less afraid to see where I have privilege and where I can lean in and act on behalf of those who don't. And so, for our challenge tonight, I wanna ask you this question. What makes you uncomfortable? What makes you so uncomfortable in your faith? Are you uncomfortable because the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, you shouldn't be. Are you uncomfortable because of another cultural practice or a requirement that makes you leave your culture behind? Are you uncomfortable or worse, are you comfortable when you shouldn't be? Are we comfortable sitting at a table that's not ours? Our discomfort, if we're not willing to deal with that, and we're only willing to sit in what is comfortable for us, we could be guilty of the very thing that Christ warns us not to do. And we are placing millstones around the neck of those who come here as children of the most high God. And we say, you are not his child. And instead we say, come back when you look more like him. Are we putting millstones where they don't belong? once we have taken the time to discern where we are, I wanna ask you to pray something of a dangerous prayer with me. God, help me be uncomfortable when I need to be. Help me lean in. Simple as that, but dangerous. God, help me be uncomfortable where I need to be and lean in. Was it comfortable? being caught with that stolen gummy bear? No. Was it comfortable marching back into the store and reconciling what I had broken as a trust between me and the cashier? No. Was it comfortable seeing that slimy little half eaten bear head staring back at me from on the scale? No. And it wasn't comfortable eating it afterwards. But it was what I needed in that moment. And some of us are at a point in our life where we see that slimy little bear head looking back at us, the prompting of the Holy Spirit on our lives to know better and do better. Knowledge is culpability. Know better, do better. Stop taking what's not yours.